The sermon text this morning is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that, you may see, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So throughout this sermon series, we've seen how Paul gives Timothy instructions, this young pastor uh, and his child uh, on the, in the faith in a variety of different issues like false teaching, church order, and church leadership. And uh, our passage today will be no different. Uh, Paul will give further instructions to Timothy, only this time he does so clearly with the expectation that he will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now we hear uh, the terms Jesus Christ. We hear them so often, especially in Paul, um, that we tend to miss perhaps uh, the weightiness and gravity behind the terms Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus and what it means to be a good servant of uh, Christ Jesus. It's almost like Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ have become uh, first and last names for Jesus. Not that they are, but we hear them so often we think it's just like a first and last name for anybody else. So some first and last names we may recognize, for example, um, think of people like Martin Luther, right? or John Calvin. Again, we're thinking of first and last names, uh, or someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, or Albert Pujols, um, or Taylor Swift, right? Because um, who doesn't like Shakespeare? Um, but the term Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, it wasn't meant to function that way. Uh, when you think of the term Christ, it was actually a royal title given to the son of David the promised ruler over Israel and the entire cosmos. This is God's very son, the ruler over all things, going back to texts like 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. That's why some suggested a better translation for Christos is actually Messiah, which more clearly conveys that Jesus is this promised Davidic ruler. So whether we choose Christ Jesus or uh, Messiah Jesus, we should understand the weightiness of Paul's expectation for Timothy, and all, all like him, that is, Timothy is to faithfully carry out his ministerial duties so that he might be a good servant of the ruler of the entire cosmos. Right? If that's not a weighty task, I don't know what is. Right? 
but this is not only significant for Timothy as a pastor, but also any other pastor entrusted with shepherding the flock of God. It's no light matter. It's a great sense of accountability before the king of the entire cosmos, the entire universe, who will hold pastors accountable for how they have shepherded the flock. Right? So what we see today is that, yes, uh, Paul does expect Timothy to faithfully carry out his ministerial duties to be a good servant of the Messiah, right? the promised Davidic king. We see this in two sections. In 4, 6 through 11, Paul calls Timothy to be, exhort the congregation to train themselves for godliness so that they be, may be more like their living God and Savior. Now, if you look at your Bibles, many Bibles put verse 11 along with 12 and 16. Uh, I think a better use for those terms, right, teach and exhort these things, goes along with verses 6 through 10. 6 and 11, if you will, are, are bookends, and what lies between is what Timothy is to exhort and teach uh, the congregation. Then in verses 12 through 16, Paul now exhorts Timothy personally to live an exemplary life and to fulfill his ministerial duties despite any fitness about his ministry because of age or his youth. Right? Now, Timothy's role as a good servant of the Messiah is supposed to be, yes, for his own good, but also for that of the entire flock that has been entrusted to him. So, in a nutshell, to summarize briefly, what we'll see in this passage is that it's one of a faithful pastor, right? Faithful pastor, all right? One who is consistent in his service to the king of kings, right? His good service to the king of kings, the Messiah, leading to the congregation's growth in holiness and godliness and ultimately to their salvation, all right? So as we think about this and we look at our text for today, right? We see in verse 6 already that Timothy is to put before the believers uh, in the congregation what he teaches them, what he puts before them, is to be based on the words of faith and good doctrine that he has followed. In other words, what he teaches, what he knows, and he himself has lived out. So what Timothy knows, what he believes, and that he then imparts to the congregation, um, these, good, these words of faith, this good doctrine, can probably be summarized, at least the basis for this faith and this good doctrine, can probably be summarized in a text like 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, through 6, where uh, Paul says, This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time, right? There's likely more, but these would be the foundational elements, if you will, of Timothy's faith and doctrine that he has learned and lived out over time. Now, notice Paul says in verse 6 that Timothy has been well-trained in these things, right? Another possible translation is he's been, he's been nourished, right? It's been his steady diet, right? These words of faith, this good doctrine, if you will, right? The point is that Timothy doesn't hasn't give just hasn't given these things a cursory look or spent little time in training or taking his training seriously. No, he's been nourished in these things. He's been well-trained in these words of faith and good doctrine. He has been nourished in them, if you will. Right? Now, 
Uh, when I was younger and I was considering uh, seminary, I did go to seminary, and um, by God's grace, I finished. And I, I anyway, um, I remember I remember people people saying things like, "Hey, don't go to don't go to seminary." Oh, I mean seminary, right? Uh, what that really was just a a low view of the pastor's preparation for ministry, right? Preparation in the words of faith and good doctrine, and there to teach and then to live out, right? Which I pursued in the context of a seminary, right? It's not always done in the context of a seminary. In many other global contexts, it's just not realistic with their lack of resources or people trained to do that kind of work, right? Some churches have their own uh, institutes where they train pastors. Our church, church for example, has uh, seminary students who take part in an internship program where you get the, both, get the, the best of both um, the classroom setting and service in a local church. You get the best of both worlds, if you will. Right? But regardless of how it's done, Paul expects, expects that, like Timothy, pastors will be well-trained, right? nourished in these words of faith and in doctrine. Right? Now, I know we have seminarians here, so I'll speak to you first, uh, who aspire uh, to the office of pastor one day. Or there may be some who desire to go to seminary or to seek training in some way, form, or capacity, right? So in light of the fact that Timothy is well-trained, right, and he's called to be a good servant of the Messiah, right, the king of the universe to whom he is accountable and all other pastors Take it seriously, right? Take your training, take your preparation seriously, right? It's important. It's no small task because you're called to be a good servant of the Messiah, the king of the entire universe who is entrusting souls to you, who is entrusting people to you, right? For you to care for them and see them grow as we're going to see in this text in godliness, right? This is no light matter. If anything, it should give you some fear and pause before you decide to pursue this kind of task that is shepherding the flock of God because we'll all be held accountable and pastors will be held accountable uh, for how we have shepherded the flock, all right? Now, this kind of ministry preparation, it doesn't happen uh, overnight. It takes time. It takes effort to be nourished in the words of faith and good doctrine, right? There's no microwave approach. Um, there's no quick path. At least there shouldn't be a quick path to a piece of paper where you just kind of go out uh, and do ministry, right? It's the wrong approach uh, to why you should pursue a seminary degree or a ministerial degree, right? Instead, right, be diligent, right, as you're pursuing your training for those who desire these things, right? Uh, take the difficult classes, right? Take Greek, uh, take Hebrew, take exegesis courses, right? Work hard, take this seriously. There is no shortcut approach to preparing to shepherd the flock of God, right? Too many students, too many people try and skirt their, ed skirt through their education, just try and just fly by, get a piece of paper, avoiding the hard professors, avoiding languages, avoiding demanding degrees, um, or just avoiding all classes on Bible and theology until the very end because you just want to get to all the practical ministry courses without ever having a solid grasp of the scriptures, which are the foundation for how we actually do ministry, right? Timothy lives that which he knows, if you will, right? And to be honest, I know very few people who've approached ministry training this way, kind of laissez-faire, uh, if you will, and have actually had a fruitful ministry. And I'm not talking about just a, a couple years of fruitful ministry, but a life of slow, patient, 
uh, careful ministry based off prayer and persistence where you are working towards and praying for people to grow in holiness to be more like Jesus over time, right? You don't want to shortcut that. Um, you don't want to rush that. Right? Preparation for this kind of ministry takes time. It takes effort. It takes diligence, right? Again, think about it this way. You're going to be accountable to the Messiah, the king of the universe, for how you have cared for souls, right? That should cause you to take your preparation seriously as you desire to pursue, pursue these things, right? Now, I get it. Um, we're all in different seasons of life, and you can't always take all the hard class. You can't always uh, push yourself to your maximum possible ability, right? There's family, there's kids, there are jobs, there are different seasons of life, but your overall approach to your preparation for ministry uh, should be one of, of diligence, should be one of perseverance, should be one of taking these things seriously, understand that there will be difficult points and more difficult seasons, but your overall approach, as best as possible, should be one of serious preparation to be a good servant of uh, the Messiah, right? But if your approach is one that's more laissez-faire, relax, or you just want the piece of paper because you want to finish and go on and, and pastor, I'd encourage you to give your training and preparation just a little bit more thought, all right? Now, as a congregation, right, uh, we want our pastors to be well-equipped because what they teach, how they nourish a congregation is important. It's important that what they know what they teach, that they spend time studying, and that they can actually live these things out over time, right? So we want to encourage aspiring pastors to pursue training, uh, encourage them in the good times, uh, encourage them in the difficult times. Um, how can we do this? All right? The first thing you have to understand is uh, what I understood, and I still understand, is that seminary students are poor. Um, they just are. They don't have a lot of money. All right? So buy them a cup of coffee. Right? Take them out and encourage them. Ask them how they're doing, how you can pray for them. And not like instant coffee, right? Take them out for a good cup. Nothing against instant coffee if you like that, but take them out for something good like Sola, uh, for example, all right? Um, invite them over for a meal. Ask them how they're doing, whether they're single or married, how you can pray for them, how you can encourage them in their training for ministry, right? They'll appreciate the free food I did um, and their de your desire to see them grow and in their ministry and prepare and to be more like Jesus as God prepares them to shepherd the flock, all right? Ask them if they have any needs, like jobs, transportation, a place to live, okay? You may not have any of these things, but you may know some people who do and can help, all right? So my point is, find some ways to encourage those who are preparing for ministry, those who are desiring to be nourished in the words of faith and doctrine, even if it's just telling them, hey, I'm praying for you, um, how can I pray for you? And just encouraging them in this very good pursuit um, that they're endeavoring. And I know personally how encouraging this can be. Uh, my first year, to be honest, I didn't know how I was going to pay uh, for tuition. I went to, for Dal for, to Dallas Seminary for my first uh, seminary degree. I just knew I'd been called to ministry, and God had called me to be equipped for that ministry and to take these things uh, seriously. So... Um, I prayed, and people began sending money. And by the end of that summer, I had my entire first year's uh, tuition covered, right? It was so encouraging to see how God's people supported me uh, as my preparation for ministry, right? I had exactly what I needed to cover my first year's 
cost, right? The next year, I didn't know where I was going to live. I had no, I had no idea. Uh, as far as I was concerned, I was going to be homeless. Um, but there was this man from Holly's hometown, and he was an executive in Dallas, and he said, um, hey, why don't you live with me for free for a whole year? Um, now, I had a part-time job, but I was able to dedicate time to my studies and my service in my church because I had that place to live. Now, I have to be honest. Um, ever since then, I've really had to lower my expectations for where I live because this place was nice. It was in uptown Dallas. This guy was an executive. I don't think I'll ever live in a nice of a place as I lived then. So ever since then, just anyway, but God is good. I have a house and he provides for me, but it's never going to be like it was during those years. At least I don't think it will. Uh, but it was such an, it was so encouraging to see how God's people supported me in my ministry training. It was, if you will, um, just a confirmation that God was calling me to prepare uh, for ministry, something, some way to serve him and his church uh, one day. So my encouragement, let's all find ways to support those who are training for ministry, those who aspire to be uh, like Timothy, a good servant of, of Jesus the Messiah. It's a good thing, I promise you, because you're doing them a service and you're also doing the body whom they will serve and oversee a very good service. Now, based on what Timothy has been trained in, Paul now specifies what he's to teach to the congregation. Right? The first thing he mentions is have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths in verse 7. In other words, have nothing to do with unprofitable, superstitious teachings, if you will. Every age has them, including our own. These could be spread through word of mouth, through books, or the internet. They're the kinds of things that draw our attention down endless rabbit holes of speculation, spending hours upon hours, letting our minds wander and wander to things that we should just, as Paul says, avoid. These are found in all different kinds of forms, and Paul's general enough that these words can be applied to many different situations throughout many different generations. Now, following this negative exhortation, Paul gives a positive exhortation to Timothy to encourage the congregation to train yourself for godliness. So instead of spending endless amounts of time in unprofitable speculation about things, theories that may or may not happen or may possibly happen uh, in the future, we are to train ourselves for godliness. This is a far more profitable endeavor and a much better use of our time. Now to emphasize the importance of godliness in verse 8, Paul compares bodily training to training for godliness. Now bodily training is certainly valuable. God gave us a body that we're to care for and use for his glory, but this requires work and it requires effort. No one gets in the shape or prepares for an athletic contest without work or effort, spending time in the gym, doing the right exercises, or running outside, what have you. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes discipline, if you will. Whether we're to be healthier, get in shape, or compete for some kind of athletic contest. It doesn't just happen, you have to be willing to deny yourself, for example, like certain foods. Reprioritize your schedule, hit the gym, the weight room. In other words, it takes discipline. Now, if people spend hours upon hours of time in physical training, which is of some value, as Paul admits, as he says, how much more should they train for godliness, which is of more value, uh, incomprehensibly more value than 
physical, tra- physical training because, as Paul says, it holds promise for the present life and the one to come. This means that godliness, yes, is valuable now as we grow in it over time and also in the age to come in which we'll be fully conformed into the image of Jesus as we love God and we love others from the heart as God intended. All right. So what does the strive for godliness actually look like? How do we wrap our minds around this? What uh, Timothy is supposed to convey to his congregation, what we are supposed to do. First, we have to realize that God's people have always been called uh, to be holy. This is nothing new. We can think of Leviticus 11.4, be holy for I am holy. The people of God have always called to be holy, to be like God, if you will, to be godly and such godliness is mirrored in the person of Jesus, whom we see in the Gospels, for example, who loved God and loved others. But when we think of godliness, we have to think beyond just ourselves or our individual spheres, uh, if you will. There is a broader purpose that God intends for godliness or our holiness. New Testament scholar Nijay Gupta uh, puts it this way. He says, I'm quoting him here, God's people are purified and sanctified by the blood of Jesus to bring God's holy light to the world. In other words, once again, God's people are purified and sanctified by the blood of Jesus to bring God's holy light to the world. So when people see us, in other words, they're supposed to see a picture of the God we claim to worship, drawing them to the one who has shed his blood to deliver them out of darkness and into his transformative light. When people see us, they're supposed to see pictures of the one we worship, right? God, drawing them to worship the one whom we claim to worship and want to be like over time. But again, this takes time, it takes effort, it takes discipline over the course of one's life. Think of it more as a marathon than a sprint, right? It's more like an oven, if you will, as opposed to a microwave. And there's no one measurable way to do it. Uh, but some of the ways we can do this, I'll give you some, some examples now. For example, consistent worship to, together. So we come in on Sundays, uh, the Lord's Day, the day we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and we hear the word. Well, we sing, we sing worship songs together, and we fellowship with other believers. We break the bread um, and the grape juice uh, in, in communion. Um, we get together for group Bible studies, uh, prayer together, care groups together. We fellowship with one another in many different ways as, as believers. We share the gospel with others. We care for widows, the orphan, and the poor. Here are examples of things that we do as we seek to grow in holiness, to be more like God and our love for him and our love for others. Notice that in most of these examples, these are things done in conjunction with other believers. Holiness, it's not like, you know, me by myself. It's not like Rambo with a knife out in the middle of the forest, right? Just, just conquering the world, um, if you will, all right? Holiness happens within the context of other believers, in the context of other people who love Jesus and are indwelt by the Spirit, whether it's care groups, Bible studies, a larger ecclesial uh, context. These are people who exhort us, encourage us, and even call out sin in our lives that may be hindering us from growing in godliness, from being more like 
the God who saved us and calls us to be like him. And as we pursue this godliness, as we grow in godliness, we are shaped more and more into the image of one who created us, reflecting his radiance, his character to a lost and dying world, a world that is watching. Godliness then is for our benefit. It totally is, it definitely is, but it's not only for our benefit. It is also a gift to those around us. So I like the way uh, philosopher and theologian uh, Miroslav Volf puts it. He says, godliness is a beautiful life given to God for the sake of the world. It's a beautiful life given to God for the sake of the world. Our lives are meant to be godly, which just stand out as beautiful in comparison to a fallen world marred by so much ugliness. This will hopefully draw people to the one who is making us and can make them truly beautiful. So how are we doing? How are we doing at striving for, for godliness? Right? It's important we examine these things. How are we doing at, like an athlete, disciplining ourselves for godliness? Do we need to reprioritize some things? Do we need to reduce our use of social media because it takes up so much time in our lives? Do we need to quit pursuing endless speculative myths on the internet? Do we need to pursue less cable news and more time in prayer and in the word with other believers? Do we need to make worship more of a priority? Do we need to make it a priority? Maybe we can join a care group where we could be encouraged by others and we can encourage others. Maybe we can find ways to serve the congregation like in the nursery. If there's anything that's more sanctifying or godly, I don't know what is than changing a diaper, for example. Um, maybe we can serve at a place like Refugee Hope Partners, right? I don't want to overburden you, and, overburden you the, and the point is we can't possibly do all of these, right? These are examples that I'm throwing at you, but maybe we can pray about things that we can remove from our life and perhaps a couple of things that we can add to our life, right? Corporate worship, definitely that's a thing, that's a thing we do regularly um, as the body of Christ, according to the author of Hebrews. Perhaps add one more thing that might help us to grow to be more like Jesus, to be more and more godly over time. And as we're made more like Jesus, we increasingly reflect the beauty of Jesus to a world marred by the ugliness of sin, right? A world that's characterized by ugliness, division, strife, anxiety, right? In light of those things, we have the opportunity to be beautiful, right? To reflect the beautiful image of Jesus and hopefully draw people to worship the one who made us and the one who redeemed us through his blood. Now in verse 10, as we move on now, we see that Timothy and Paul and others like them, right? They toil and they strive. Why do they toil and strive? That's to see people grow more and more to be like the living God, right? To be more godly. This is, this is what pastors desire for their flock. This is what pastors should desire for their flock, to see their growth in godliness. That's what will make them faithful ministers of the Messiah, faithful ministers of Jesus Christ. Now, this last part of verse 10 says, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. This is not an argument for universalism, that all 
will be saved. Instead, it reflects the thought that although God's salvation is available to all, it's only for those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, what better motivation do we have to strive for godliness? That others may be drawn to the one who gave his life for us so that they, so that we, so that all of us might be fully conformed into his image in a new creation, right? That's a very good reason to strive for holiness. It's a good reason for pastors to strive to see their congregations grow in holiness, right? To see them be more like God, to see us be more like God over time. Now, Paul rounds out this section uh, with the words command and teach these things, reaffirming that Timothy is to encourage his congregation to avoid speculative myths and to train themselves in godliness, right? And this now moves us into the second part of this passage, now in verses uh, 12 through 16, where Paul gives Timothy now personal advice uh, as a minister of the gospel, as a pastor. He begins by exhorting Timothy not to allow anyone to despise him because of his youth. Now, Paul never says how old Timothy actually is, likely he's in his 20s or somewhere into his, his mid-30s, perhaps too young uh, for an ancient context where leaders were typically people who possessed significant life experience and were respected in their communities. Now, Paul is not desi- uh, denying the importance of wisdom or age or experience. These are all good things. They're evidence of a life well-lived. What he is denying, um, as David Powell says, that a youthful scholar should be, I'm sorry, a youthful minister should be ignored as being insignificant and irrelevant uh, in ministry simply because of his age. Right? Timothy is certainly mature enough in his faith, as Paul has said, he's been nourished in these words, words of faith, this good doctrine, to where his age should not be a hindrance. So Paul calls him to counter the prejudice associated with his youth by setting an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity in verse 12. In other words, Counter the misconceptions by living out a godly lifestyle. Practice what you preach, if you will. Using a Petrine phrase, or Peter says in 1 Peter, be an example to the flock. The goal is that people would no longer look down on him, but follow him and be examples of godliness to a lost and dying world. Now, Paul's next exhortation in verse 13 says, Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. This refers to the minister's role in reading and explaining Scripture and exhorting the congregation to do what it says. This would be akin, if you will, to expository preaching. It's what Tom and others do week after week as they painstakingly uh, explain the Scriptures and exhort us to godliness. When we take verses 12 and 13 together, and we take them together as a whole, we see Paul exhorts Timothy to serve the congregation well in word and in deed, in what he preaches and in what he lives. Not one or the other, but the faithful minister, the good servant of the Messiah, is called to have both a holy life and a faithful ministry. Both are for Timothy's benefit and for his congregations. Now, I know some of us have been in contexts where someone is preaching the word and not living the word, where what is being proclaimed 
is not actually um, being lived out. We've also, we've heard of these things in public uh, all the time, right? It seems every other day there's a new podcast or a new article about a pastor who has succumbed to some kind of a moral failure. Something has been discovered um, about him. And when this usually happens, it leaves difficulties in its wake, not just on pastors and their families, uh, but the church as a whole, right? People are hurt, they're disillusioned. Right? Here's someone that we look to for a model of godliness who has failed, in some cases badly, in some cases publicly. It even causes some folks to question their faith. Right? So I understand those things. Pastors, however, are shepherds whose lives, both in word and in deed, are supposed to reflect the great shepherd, Jesus the Messiah. Right? Perfection, I'm not saying, is possible. However, as much as possible, the pastor, the good shepherd, is to seek to walk in holiness. Right? This, after all, is the first exhortation to Timothy, right? To be godly, and then you get the ministry of, of proclamation, right? It shows you just how important it is for the one who proclaims the word to actually live the word because the minister's life should not be a cause for people to stumble in the faith, but a cause for people to build, be built up in the faith. It shouldn't lead to ungodliness, but it should lead to growth in godliness. But for those who have experienced hurt or failure in different churches, um, I completely understand. All right? I would encourage you to seek healing or counseling through, um, through this and other means while keeping your eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the good shepherd, who will soon return to care for you and lead you as a good shepherd, better than any shepherd on this present earth possibly can. As Peter promises, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. So keep your eyes fixed on him. Right? Soon the good shepherd will return and put all things to rights. Now as we move towards the end of this passage, we see in verse 14 that Paul exhorts Timothy not to neglect the gift he received when the council of elders laid their hands upon him. Right, this idea of laying on hands uh, on followers or understudies, if you will, you see it in the Old Testament, for example, as Moses uh, lays his hands on Joshua, passing his, his ministry onto him. You also see it in that mold here in this passage as the council of elders, Paul would have likely been uh, included uh, in, this, in this group, lays their hands on Timothy, uh, bestowing responsibilities for caring for the flock of God, the people of God. While Paul's not specific as to the gift that's given to him at this time, we do see elsewhere that the Spirit is the one who bestows gifts on believers for the sake of the church. So whatever gift it is, perhaps exhortation or preaching, both, it's given for the sake of ministering to the larger body, the larger congregation. And as Timothy ministers to the flock, as we see now in verse 15, he is to continue practicing these things. That is, living a godly life, expositing the word, exhorting the word to the congregation, the things Paul's been focusing on in this passage, so that everyone may see his progress or his growth. That is, they may no longer see him just as young in age, but a mature minister who is to be followed, who is to be emulated, right? in their growth in 
godliness. The goal, of course, as he keeps a close watch on his life and doctrine. Again, summarize what Paul's been focusing on, right? Life and doctrine, right? Preaching and teaching, right? Believing and actually living, right? The goal is that Timothy will save both himself and his hearers. What does this mean as we round out this passage? It means that as Timothy grows in godliness and teaching the word, he both, he both holds out the hope that he will continue growing in godliness, more and more godly, more and more sanctified, until the day he is finally delivered into the place where he will love God and neighbor forever as he, as all of us, were intended when, we were, when Adam and Eve were in the garden. All right? This is what it means to be saved, if you will. And his example, the example of pastors, is to spur his congregation, is to spur us to our growth and holiness, that we, that they might follow him and our pastors into a place where we all will at last be beautifully conformed into the image of Jesus. So as we take a look at this past passage as a whole, we see the picture of a pastor one who strives to be a good servant of the Messiah, the king of the entire cosmos. It's no easy task. It's not one that should be taken lightly because the king of the universe will one day hold pastors responsible for how they shepherd the flock. We can count on that. So for those who desire the office of pastor, take it seriously. Those who are pastors, take it seriously. Prepare well for a life of serving the flock, both in, both in what you believe and what you teach and also what you live, how you live out your faith. Congregation supports such people. Encourage them. It's for your good. It's for our good and to those whom they will one day minister if they're not doing so already. Because the model of a faithful pastor, as we look at this passage, is one who exhorts the congregation to godliness and also lives it out for himself so that they and their people might one day be saved into a place where we will all be conformed into the magnificent glorious and beautiful image of jesus the messiah let's bow our heads for a moment and let's just take some time to reflect on what are some ways we can grow in godliness in our lives and what are some ways in which we can encourage others to grow in godliness. Lord, we thank you for this image you've given us in this text of a, of a faithful pastor, uh, one who is to be a faithful pastor, Timothy. Lord, I pray that pastors seek to shepherd their flock well as good servants of the Messiah and to see their growth in holiness, to pray for it, to strive for it. And I pray as the church, uh, we might seek to grow, seek to emulate those who are walking in godliness as we seek to be more like Jesus and reflect the image of Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. Help us, Lord, lead us by your spirit um, as we seek to walk like Jesus and live like Jesus, shepherd the flock of Jesus. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.